interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. What I've been trying to do, imperfectly, is to get the text to interpret you instead of get you to interpret the text. This is a, this is a deep and profound theological move I'm making. We do it imperfectly because, of course, we do have to interpret the text. We have to read the Bible. Right? But the, 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 the mythology of our era is that the text stands before us to be judged. And theologically, we want to put ourselves in the other place where it's the text that judges us, right? We stand under the text. And often, uh, uh, again, in, in uh, ancient uh, Hebrew uh, uh, communities, the text is brought up as a scroll and you hold it high as a symbol that you stand under it. Right. Now, in a, in a Protestant and largely uh, democratized era, everybody's got their own Bible. Right? We've got the women's Bible, we've got the teenager's Bible, we've got, and everybody's got their own Bible, which means it belongs to you instead of you belonging to it. Now, I think there is something good about having a Bible translated into the vernacular. Right? But the great danger, of course, is that we lose the power of it to interpret us while gaining that sense in which we can read it in our own language. Uh, there are always dangers whichever way the pendulum swings. And recognizing the dangers of the way in which we've swung the pendulum doesn't mean you therefore jack it back the other direction. It means you recognize your own temptations, your own dangers for what they are. Ours in the evangelical community is a danger of not being interpreted by the text, but rather of interpreting the text. Sometimes it's hard to ask a question after a sermon is preached, isn't it? And I apologize, but uh, <laughs> the, the preacher knows this. I'll accept that Right. The, the history of interpretation of Genesis is very uh, um, interesting and provocative and complex. And I, I don't want to make it seem too simple. Uh, but the temple imagery is uh, much more prevalent uh, in the uh, early church and in the medieval church. And, uh, Calvin has this kind of imagery as well at the Reformation era. It slowly begins to kind of recede. Again, I'm making a large generalization. It recedes in the 18th century into the 19th century. Uh, and some historical reasons why that's the case. Um, and so if you 
one thing I've been reading a lot of Jewish literature on idolatry, part of this project I'm working on. Hopefully this time next year uh, the the manuscript will be finished on uh, identity and idolatry. But I've been reading a lot of Jewish commentators on idolatry uh, and interesting kind of uh, commentary on Exodus 32 in particular. Uh, But they they almost uh, 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 uniformly, they draw attention to the early accounts of Genesis as a temple narrative. I mean, you see it far more among uh, uh, Jewish commentators than you do Christian commentators. Uh, And I... um, So I I, I, I think that history is the more interesting one as far as I'm concerned, the history of Jewish interpretation uh, of the text. Um, Again, uh, a whole, uh, an aside here, how Jesus deals with temple, the new temple, the church as the temple. You know, First uh, Peter 2, uh, talking about metaphors earlier this morning, First Peter 2 mixes all these grand metaphors of temple, of nation, of kingdom uh, in the description of the church uh, there in First Peter 2. Uh, but unless you have a temple theology that is a temple framework, you haven't got a clue what's going on with the church. And temples are very significant. They, they, um, let me just put it as, in summary as best I can here quickly. Temples connote uh, sacredness to space that reorder time. Right? So temples are the localization of God on earth. You find this in pagan uh, literature as well as uh, 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 Jewish literature. Right? That's what's common that uh, the gods, uh, here speaking of the pagans, the gods set up uh, a temple in the land uh, for uh, the worship of Molech, or we could think of a host of pagan deities. And that temple is to be representative that that god rules that sphere. And so a conquering king uh, conquers a, a land and sets up a temple to their gods, right? And in that temple, the uh, the God is represented by a statue. This whole dialectic in uh, Romans chapter 1, for example, uh, Paul's talking about the God who made us, nonetheless gives us over to the desires of our own hearts. And what do we do? We create gods in our own image. And then he picks this imagery up in uh, uh, Acts 17 at Athens. He comes into uh, this, this great city with more idols than you could shake a stick at. Uh, and Paul's argument there is, very uh, interesting, uh, as he uh, has this uh, discussion with the philosophers at Athens, this legal court of sorts, uh, and suggests that don't you folks understand the dynamic of idolatry, that you who have made these gods nonetheless suppose that these gods made you? Isn't there something curious about this? Don't you see the the kind of self-referential problems of of uh, incoherence to this claim. Uh, so, uh, uh, but outside of the temple imagery, uh, so much of the New Testament material is just lost on us, uh, I think. Uh, that there is a sense in which divine presence must be particularized, concretized, public, tangible. Right? Why does God grant to us uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
right? Yeah, that you can eat, you can drink. Kind of interesting imagery of a greater banquet, but that his presence is manifest concretely. And ours is a tradition, the evangelical tradition, which has spiritualized divine presence. Uh, it, it doesn't have ways to articulate the concretization of God's presence in our midst. Uh, and uh, great dangers in that. Yeah. To judge. Um, and inevitably, we're reflecting the gods we have made, the gods of comfort and convenience, uh, of entertainment, uh, fill in the blanks however you'd like. We, we uh, just saying yea and amen to your, your comment here. Uh, we invite God into our presence. Right? Uh, 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 worship, public worship, is public for a reason. Uh, we are coming into God's presence. And so um, reading uh, about the Feast of Yom Kippur, for example, where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies with a, a rope attached around his, his, uh, his one leg because if he died in there, no one else was allowed to go. They'd have to pull him out. Right? And so you, you develop this whole uh, kind of ritual around God's presence. Now, it's kind of funny in one sense, but it, it's so foreign to us. Uh, the pendulum is swung in the other direction. Now, I want to affirm uh, what I might call the democratization of God's presence, that he's not just present in the temple, right? That he's present when his people gather in his name, right? And the remarkable thing is that in Ithaca, New York, in Ithaca, New York, imagine two millennia ago thinking that God is present in Ithaca, New York. Or, or in Nairobi, Kenya, or in uh, Beijing, you know, God is present, localized present. Surely he's omnipresent. He is always, the Jews never affirmed uh, that God was only in Israel. But the Jew really affirmed that God's localized presence was tangible and concrete in Israel. And so... Um, uh, uh, we do need to recover, recapture. Part of that's recognizing our own idols. Uh, part of it's recognizing more clearly uh, this kind of biblical theology of temple and presence. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah. I, I think there are good signs. I think we're, we're, uh, we're talking a little bit of break about the, it, it, should we be optimistic about the state of the church in the West? Um, probably not, but uh, we, uh, we ought not lose sight of the fact that um, what's the, the Pew survey that was done 18 months ago, the Pew Foundation did a survey of religious uh, convictions and behavior among Americans. And in the um, age group of 18 to 25, uh, nearly 80% of them did not want to worship with contemporary music. There's a very interesting, uh, absolutely baffled the, the pollsters uh, there and a lot of the church uh, uh, folk. Now, I, I just highlight that is because I do think there is a generation emerging uh, that is saying, 
uh, wisely and unwisely. I don't want to be like you people, you boomers, right, who refashion worship with a kind of Barry Manilow tone to it, uh, you know. Uh, and I, I want to I worship that's more provocative, uh, more prophetic, that has an edge to it or, or whatever. Now, that itself has a pendulum swing and, and can be domesticated and tamed. Uh, but this kind of narcissistic tendency uh, among the boomers has, has some indication that this next group doesn't want it. Right? Uh, now, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm realistic enough to know that when the Lord returns, things will be put right. But before then, things are going to be still kind of crazy. So uh, I don't want to take too much hope in, uh, uh, in that reality. Amen. Maybe lunchtime? Sensing the ripeness of time. Uh, why don't we uh, just give thanks uh, for our morning and then for the food. And we have till about uh, 1.30 to come on back. Uh, for those of you who signed up for food, it's over there. Unfortunately, we can't invite those who walked in this morning because uh, uh, we can't multiply. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, let's pray together and uh, give thanks.